0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, each year in Australia, we lose more than 30,000 lives to cardiac arrest. Well, our guest this week... And he is one of the most successful Ironmen of all time. Guy Luch is trying to change that. Guy tragically lost one of his best friends to sudden cardiac arrest in 2016. So he launched a business. He's called it Heart 180. And this business is about supplying defibrillators to workplaces, gyms, childcare centres and other organisations right across the country to deal with this issue of sudden cardiac arrest. His aim is to get this machine, this contraption, within 180 seconds of every single Australian. And if you get it there in time, you can save a person's life. I'm going to ask Guy about that one life-changing event that motivated him to start this business. I'm also going to talk to him about those characteristics of being a great sportsman and the experiences you get from training to become a great sportsman that he's now applying to his business life. I'm going to talk to him about how important it is to build awareness, and that is educate the public about the importance of defibrillators. Can he get government to make this mandatory? And how has he convinced one major retailer to sign up to distribute this particular product? It's a right purpose, and it's the right purpose for someone exactly like Guy Leach, one of these super intense human beings who want to make change. So let's get into it. Guy Leach, welcome to the mentor, mate. Good to be here. Good to see you. Thank you. Fresh, yeah, fresh. Feeling good. No paddling this morning.
1: No, I was in Queensland the last couple of days. Uh, I actually live down here on the northern beaches, but um, we do paddle. We paddle uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday mornings. I've got a big group of um, predominantly guys that uh, turn up in the mornings in the dark and get out there and go paddling. So now it's good. it's good. So a...
0: I've always wanted to know. Like I mean, I'm, I live near the water, mm. um, and uh, I've often um, flirted with um, getting on a, a on a, ski, a sk- ski or something like that. Yeah, and I see I see Malcolm Turnbull's always um, sort of tweeting or not not tweeting, um, Instagramming about uh, you know how he's been on the harbour. And
1: mm. someone
0: told me, a mate of mine told me that it's uh, it's better to have a ski than it is to have a, a kayak. Yep. I know this is off the topic, but yeah, just, I'm here to pick your brains for a second. I've got answers What's on the this. best go? Like, say for Sydney Harbour, on Sydney Harbour, because, you well, know. It's...
1: The ocean skis are more, um, you've got more variety of what you can do. Um, you sit on top of the ski predominantly, on top of the craft, not inside it, like you do with a sea kayak. Um, I mean, they're built to handle conditions. So if it's windy, choppy, those sort of things. You, you don't fall off. Well, you, look, you can fall off, but um, but certainly you'll get the like once you get to a stage of knowing what you're doing, um, you get more fun out of it. I mean, a big thing for us is when the wind's howling, we uh, we'll paddle downwind down the coast. So we'll literally, if it's blowing howling southerly winds at 25 knots, it's not um it's not unlike us to get in at Manly and do a paddle up towards um you know Palm Beach, and you're actually catching the swell. How do you world. come back? You get picked up.
0: You get someone to go up there to pick <laughs> up the get other end. Up, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and Good how, question how hard are they to sort of cart around these things? I mean, the, the ski, for example.
1: Well, they're twenty foot long. They're they're made out of carbon. The fast ones, so they literally only weigh ten or eleven kilos. So it's not that heavy. It's no, just a bit awkward. You just got to put them on the car. You have racks, and but it's a it's it's a sort of a sport that's grown the last sort of fifteen years. My mate brought the uh, first ocean skis in from uh, South Africa. So when I used to do Ironman racing, the skis were similar. Um, but but a little bit different.
0: So when you, when you race an I Man, you did it on a on a ski. Yeah,
1: it was a surf ski. These are ocean skis. So is it, look, they're predominantly the same. They're probably a fifteen twenty percent difference in shape. Um, the the ocean skis are made for out out in the water where you, you're dealing with chop and bump. When we we're doing i Man, the skis that we paddle were for going in and out through the surf. So you know those days when the surf was very big and you. are Trying to get the ski out through the, the waves and around some turning boys and back in, slight variation in shape and what you had. You so know. that's the first
0: question I want to ask you. And and <laughs> so you enough? should get into it. Oh, no, cause I know because I, I, I've never tried it, but I really do want to try. it. But people tell me that you know you've got to be careful. One's a bit harder. Ones, ones you can fall right, out. I'll, the... I'll,
1: ta- I'll take you out. How's that? No, I'll make you. Are the you promise. a manly? Yeah, but I'll come over to you. I'll bring a ski over, and I'll take you out and show you how to do oh, it. That'd be awesome. The second question I always want to ask Guy Leach, and I don't know
0: if this is true or not. I don't know if it's a uh, folklore, but I remember. Can you just uh, give me an indication? How many years ago were you competing? At your at your best, like
1: uh, in the '90s, so I started in the '80s, but I, like '84 to '95,
0: '84 '95. So, well, and many moons ago, and what would have been one of the big events? Like, so, what was the biggest event you? Would I won have
1: the f- I won the first ever professional Ironman race called the Calling Out of Gold. So, yeah, I I, It that. was a very unusual situation, and if you you've probably interviewed a lot of sports people over the years, I, I would assume, and you, yep. and you know a lot, but I I was. I suppose in a, a strange situation, in that I turned up on a given day for a, for a big race on the Gold Coast that was only put on because of a movie, and it was um, what it was the was movie? The Calling Gold. So, so the Coolangatta Gold, the
0: event that you're talking about, mm. was was a well, movie. Yeah, because I remember I remember I've seen the movie. Yeah, and it was a, it's it was an ordinary movie. Who was so it about? Let's be honest. It who was, was it a, about
1: it was um, it was based on. It was a two brothers. And a father who um, Nick Tate, the famous actor, played the father who, um, who favoured the older son and the two of them wanted to be the best Iron Man and at the time Grant Kenny was the most famous yeah. Iron Man and made Iron Man famous in Australia. He played himself in the movie. Uh, I remember and, that. And it had a whole bunch of different things going on. They were chasing the same girl. There was a whole bunch of different bits and pieces. But ultimately it was, came down to this final race and in the script, and the Man race at a surf carnival at the time was a 15-minute race that you did like the surf boats and the swim race and the flags and nothing more than that. So the script writers were like, how do we come up with a race that's going to be big enough to carry the last part of this movie script? So they came up with a real race, and the race was a run, swim, and paddle from surface paradise all the way down to Cooling which was 23 kilometres one way, and then you had to go back the other way and complete it. And the whole premise was that they built this huge stand at, the, at Surface Paradise where the, the real competitors started the race and went down two and a half hours down to Kulangata and then back again. And whilst they were doing that and they were filming that to get shots for the, part of the mo- last part of the movie, the actors, Grant Kenny and this ensemble of really fit-looking blokes um, did this run into scripted run into the finish line? That was you know Grant Kenny and the two brothers trying to win this forty-six kilometer race, and they were all together up the finish, and the crowd would scream on cue, and and we were out there doing the race. So the, the actual, actual race, the actual, actual actual race, yeah. So they put fifty thousand dollars worth of gold on this event in nineteen eighty-four. I was in Manly Surf Club at eighteen years of age, and this poster turned up on the wall at Manly Surf Club six months prior. to to go and do this race and I got caught up in the whole thing and I wanted to go and compete in it like about five of the other boys from Manly Surf Club. So we turned up on the day and and imagine in 84, it's January, 35 degrees in the shade, not a cloud in the sky, we started at 7am, there was 20,000 people in the stand and on the beach seeing us go down the other end of the coast And, um, you know, back in those days, sports science wasn't even a terminology, you know, Reebok hadn't launched in Australia, carbo-loading was meat pies and cakes. And, um, you know, there was no relevance to know even how you would go and race over four to five hours in an event like this. There was no background. I couldn't go and ring up you who's done the race for 10 years and say, oh, listen, Mark, what do you think I should do? Complete another novelty to this whole thing. So... You know, it was it was a day where I literally hit the lead at the two-hour two mark, which was not even down near Coolangatta. And, um, you know, I counted 21 helicopters in the air filming this event to try to get the footage to, to be able to cut it all up and edit it for the last part of the movie. And, um, you know, I just scraped my way through this thing, hit the lead at two hours and just hung on for dear life for the next two and a half hours and got to the finish line in front. So I literally turned up that morning unknown to Australia the time this race was finished and the, the media attention on it, the movie that came out after it, I was a household name.
0: Well, I, I remember it. I remember it well. It was very strange. It was it, a
1: very strange part of my life. And the thing,
0: and obviously then you, you competed in the future, and the thing that I used to, I heard about you, and I don't know if it's true or not, was that you used to get so fit that you used to get viruses and, and or you would get sick. And I don't know if this is true, but th- there was this sort of correlation between your – level of fitness and that your immune system would be such that you would be vulnerable to getting sick. And then sometimes those, those, that your immune system would affect your ability to perform. Is it true?
1: Or even get to the start line. Is that true? 100% true. Right. And like, if I trained you five hours a day, um, at a high level for the next three to four months and just really just, you know, it was all about high performance and going fast and getting better. Um, you would have the same problem, yeah. No,
0: but in those days, today the science that backs it up, but in those days it was sort of folkloric, and it was really what I heard. It was he, rugby league players didn't get it. I mean, other people didn't necessarily get it, but the level at which you were training the, the, because that, that that incredible intensity for an Ironman yeah. event.
1: I think I think there's like there's two parts to this. One is that yeah, you, when you're training for four different uh, sports in one event, basically running, swimming paddling aboard and 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 the kayaking the skis you you're doing a lot of training firstly and you can't win an Ironman race if your swim legs weak mm. uh, as as you know you can't win it if you your run legs weak so you have to be strong across the board which you know in in business and everything you do you 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 can't afford to be too weak in any one area um so you did a lot of work and back in those days you know we really looked at the workload being the king as to what brought you to the top of the uh the tree you know and what you did so it was
0: work harder 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 yeah, harder
1: and just if you got an extra session in in a day you probably mm-hmm. had an advantage over the field and then you know looking back on the whole thing um you know obviously I thought we overtrained looking back at it did we give enough attention to recovery and that side of it probably not uh did I have a good understanding of tapering and and, and easing up into a race year I did cuz I had a swimming background I represented Australia swimming Prior to doing Ironman, I had good coaches. I, one of my coaches was the Olympic head swimming coach back in the 70s when I the was Don a Talbot. show. Don uh, Talbot. It was Terry Gathercock, actually. Yeah, okay, yeah. Around that era. Yep. Yep, yep. And, um, and he coached me for six years of my, my swimming career. So I understood tapering, but the other elements, yeah. So you would get sick because your immune system was run down, you are constantly tired, your white blood cell count was low, which meant that you didn't have that army to fight viruses and the like. So it was, that, it was that constant battle of being fit enough and fast enough to win a race, but then coupled with the fact that if you got crook, you wouldn't get to the start line or you get to the start line un, you know, in trouble. You know? well, that's, so, that's an
0: interesting analogy because it sort of brings me to what you're doing these days. Um, you know, we don't really understand the vulnerabilities and our mentality is my mentality 100% my mentality is if I'm training for an event if I'm training like if I got a fight coming up I'll I'll train my ass off for 12 weeks Mm -hmm. literally push myself twice a day every day seven days and and, and invariably I get sick or an injury and what we don't understand is our vulnerabilities and it's funny I got got a good mate Jeff and I got one of the young interns here today Max who's who's trains with Jeff and his father's a good mate Jeff and etc and uh and he's here to sort of watch what we're doing. And um, and Jeff ha- is a strong believer because he used to do what you did.
1: I, I I've known Jeff since nineteen eighty five. And today
0: he will say it's all bullshit. Mm. He was the fittest fighter I've ever seen. And, and He won on fitness. He, he would
1: run run every day before he did the boxing. And training. he
0: and but today he says you need you don't need to train that much, Mark. Just slow down. Don't train as much. Mm. And because of vulnerabilities and what you're here today to talk about. Is we have vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities, some of which are hidden. And when we're training or exercising, it could be just for leisure, something can go wrong. Because we can't see inside, we can only see on the outside. Well,
1: we human beings by nature are, are vulnerable, aren't we? But
0: you've actually experienced an this, like f- fully experienced, lived yep. it. It was your life, it was your career yep. in, in a lot of ways. Mm. So, What is that vulnerability that your your business today, what you're trying to promote today, what's that vulnerability that you're trying to remedy?
1: So I'll go back a step first and say that, you know, what we don't know is what we can't see inside us. You know, it's very easy to, and you said, you know, when you're training for a fight and... For me, like I'd, I'd train six months out for a major race, you know, not twelve weeks, but we'd we'd knock out a twenty-six week. I don't know how you race. can do
0: that mentally yeah. or physically. I know
1: when when you're when you're um twenty years of age, yeah, and you want to be the best in the world, and you will go and do what you got to do to to get there. Then you know it it it's all laid out. But then when you get injured or you're understanding how you're feeling in training, you know whether you've got a slight niggle in your shoulder or. Your knee's a bit a bit tight. you can up feel everything. Says, you can feel every little thing. Everything. Beca- and also you're attuned to it because it's what you're doing. We'd train three times a day most days of the week. So we knew our body to the point where I could go and run up a hill and I'd have a heart rate monitor on, not look at that. And you said, what's your heart rate, leads And I'd say, it's 168. It's and I'd be within one beat. Mm. I, did, I knew my body. I knew when I woke up in the morning whether I was 50 beats waking up, or 38. I remember Don Talby
0: used to make you fill out a logbook. I used to swim, and yep. uh, Don Talby used to make us fill out a logbook when we woke up, Correct. and we used to have to fill out a logbook after we trained, and we were always taking our pulse. you do a 1,500 or 200s or sprints or
1: walk backs or yep. something. That was, you, it wasn't was scientific. You but, know the program. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I can tell you, like, and we'll get on to the internal part of the thing, but I can tell you that I started logbooks when I was 12 years of age, and when I was 35 and retired from man, I was still doing logbooks, journals, and and – when I look back to, and, you, and the point is that I would take my heart rate leading into an event and, and the taper would last between nine and 12 days leading in, which was tapering means where you reduce the workload, you freshen up and get ready for the for the race or the battle, whatever you've got coming up. And I could tell you that I would start my taper and I'd wake up in the morning having done heavy training into my first day of taper and my, and my resting heart rate waking up in the morning would be in the in the 50s cuz my body was tired so the beat, beat of my heart was was going faster if i got my my heart rate in the morning waking up within 48 hours of a race to under 40 so 36 being the lowest i ever got to that's ridiculous which means i was rested to the point where my body's going i don't even need to beat your heart that much because you are so rested i won the race because i look back on 10 12 years of doing i man racing i never lost a race when my heart rate was under forty ever. So, you know, so you start talking about was there science in what I did? Not really. Well, then but there's stats, but, that's data. But but you know, you learn it after the fact. Because so, yeah, yeah. I look back and went and then I started working out, well then, you know, what is high performance? How do you win? What are the what are the, the the constants that got you to being the best in the world? And that was one of them. Getting the table right. But as far as the internal side of your body goes, you know, you most of the time you can't feel what you're going through. And when you start talking about what I'm doing now, it, it's around sudden cardiac arrest. and it's the single biggest killer in in this country. And yeah, you know, what does
0: that mean sudden cardiac arrest?
1: It, it means that the electrical side of your your heart malfunctions, plays up. And so three and a half years ago, one of my best mates in one of those paddling sessions that we do in the morning, we get hundreds of um, predominantly guys in their middle age. Turn up and go paddling with me in the morning. It was something I started nearly sixteen years ago as a way of continuing to train and do something I love, which is being on the water. And I thought, well, to get out of bed at five, five thirty in the morning when you're not motivated, how do I get up? And if other guys are turning up, they're paying me to go and train them, then I'll get up and do that. And that started a long time ago. And that's built and built and built. So it's a it's a really big morning training group now. So three and a half years ago, we did a session just after New Year's Eve at Manly Harbour. Um did you mean
0: New Year's Day or a couple of nah, days? No,
1: it was a couple of days after. We had that break over that Christmas period and it was the first sort of session back, 6 o'clock in the morning, start till 7.30 a.m., right near where the ferries come in at Manly. It was 25 predominantly guys that turned up for this session. And at the back end of the session, one of the boys Charles Stewart, who was um, ex wildwater Sports journalist, uh, reporter, he said to one of the guys, tell Leachie I'm feeling a bit crook, I only paddle in, I'll see you at breakfast. That was at 20 past seven. We paddled into um, one of the um, neighbouring beaches um, near Manly Harbour there and did some push-ups and sit-ups before we paddled in. He got to the shore as we worked out, walked his ski up to the car on the side of the road there, went to put it on. The car and had a cardiac arrest and dropped dead. He died right on the grass. Well, at the moment he was he was dying, yeah. Mm. So not breathing, unconscious, and so <clears throat> we're still out doing our push ups and sit ups. This is at sort of seven twenty five. We're five minutes away from coming in. Someone walking past has has seen him on the ground and thought that doesn't look right. He's in a weird position. I'll go and I'll go and check it out. This guy was in Manly Cirque Club, knew how to do CPR. He rang triple O, started resuscitation. We've turned up back into the shore, and one of the guys has said, Leachie, is that someone up there doing resus on someone? And looked up, bolted off the ski and ran up the beach to to the grass to see what was going on. As I got closer, I realised it was my mate on the ground. So I turned up, got to the guy and said, mate, how long have you been doing this for? He said, I think five minutes. Have you rung triple O? Yes. Do you want me to take over? Yes. So I took over and started resussing my mate. The short of it was that Chucky didn't make it. And I learned after the fact that I could have pumped his chest all day and nothing was going to happen. And I didn't realize that because he had an electrical issue with his heart and the only thing that was going to um, bring him back to life was a shock from a defibrillator. So having chatted to the cardiologist, to the surgeon, to the ambos that turned up uh, on that day, I learned something I didn't know, and that was that today in Australia, nearly 100 people die from an electrical issue with their heart. A couple of kids, teenagers, some fit 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, right up to the elderly. And the only thing that's going to save them when there's an electrical issue with their heart is a shock from a defibrillator. And today, about 6% of people who have electrical issues with their heart will survive. So predominantly what happens is someone will drop, triple O will get rung. Someone will jump in if they know CPR and start pumping the chest and because there's no defib close, the ambulance turns up about 12, 13, 14 minutes after the, the call, which is the normal call-out time. They come in too late because to get someone back from an electrical issue with their heart, you need to get, in a perfect world, the pads on their chest within 180 seconds, three minutes, and do CPR. Give a, a shock from the defibrillator. It'll do that automatically. And with good CPR, they've got up to 90% chance of surviving it. You
0: do CPR after it, after the shock? You
1: put the, the pads on and it'll tell you what to do. Right. It literally goes, analyse the heart, it'll shock if it needs to shock and then it'll say to you, start CPR, put one hand in the middle of the chest, put the other hand over the top, lean forward, push down five centimetres and it'll time you. Uh, the one I've got brought in today will time you as you do that and then it'll, if it doesn't get the person back on the first shock, It'll get ready again in two minutes' time, escalate the shock up, and hit them again. So literally, in Australia, the single biggest killer of Australians is sudden cardiac arrest. It's bigger than cancer, the road toll, what have you, and we have a 6% survival rate on the streets of Australia for this, and it, it kills eight to 10 kids every week. Every and week, every week. But today in Australia, nearly 100 people die today. Every week. From an electoral issue today. Every, every day. day. Every day. No. Every day. It is the single like the stats are so ridiculous that you will sit here and go, Leechy, yeah, I've never heard this before. No. And, and you, 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 if you're oh. a well informed guy. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't. I, I say this to everyone. People go, bullshit. That's bullshit. It's not yeah. true. I'm like, look, the stats up. Over thirty thousand people this year die from sudden cardiac arrest and most of them can be saved. So we go I go back a step. Seventy years ago in Seattle, defibrillators were invented by a company called Physio Control. This company is still in Seattle, right? They started community campaigns. People learned how to do CPR. Defibs got distributed to businesses, to gyms, to childcare centres, you name it. So there's lots of defibs in Seattle. If you have a sudden cardiac arrest over there, you've got a 62% chance of living.
0: As opposed to 6%. a 6% chance if you don't have one.
1: So do the maths on th- over 30,000 people dying this year in Australia. So literally on their stat, we could save over 20,000 people. So over a decade, there's 200,000 people that don't need to die. And we're talking about kids, teenagers, 20-year-olds in, in, in those numbers. So it doesn't discriminate. The whole issue with the electrical issue at the heart is that that it doesn't discriminate to just older people being a plumbing issue with your heart, which gets predominantly older people, electrical, different ballgame.
0: We're going to go the break and I want to come back on because I want to talk about, I don't understand, I'm, and I'm there for uh, survey one, but I'm assuming most people don't understand. Most people, I thought, I thought problems with the heart were around the plumbing, in other words, blockages, etc. cetera, yeah, aside from, um, you know, Genetic problems of the heart, but just I thought it was a plumbing problem. You're telling me there's another problem which may be solved. But the plumbing problem can't be solved by but the differe, but
1: it's, it's a bigger problem and it's a solvable problem.
0: So we're going to come back, we go to the break and we'll come back and we'll talk about this because I think that um, for me, if the problem is around electricity or power to the heart, then it makes sense. Why wouldn't you have one of these things everywhere? One of these things in the office environment. I mean, I was only thinking the other day when I was walking up the stairs to go to an apartment place that, that, that I have and I stay in the city. I decided to take the stairs instead of the lift. I just, it just was a bit weird. But uh, oh, I do that, ba- around it? about the seven <laughs> four, my heart started, started sort of pumping. I thought, imagine if I fucking died here, you know? Like, imagine if I had a heart attack in the stairwell. Here. In the stairwell, no boss is going to find me. I'll <laughs> be fucked. No. Like, I'll be dead. It will I'll, be fucked. I'll be. Oh, they'll find me. I'll be rotted <laughs> or something down the track. So I do want to talk about this because I, I find it fascinating. So we'll go to the break and we'll come back. Done. Hey Matt, how you going,
2: mate? Well thanks, Mark. What business have you got for sale this week? So what's on the market? Yeah, something a little bit different, very different for me. I've never actually come across this style of business before, but it's um it's it's drug and alcohol testing. So it, it works with private corporations and people that uh that might have employees that need to be tested regularly. Is it like workplace based? Absolutely. Well, that's a
0: pretty topical thing at the moment, obviously, because the you know the Prime Minister is uh, having a whole lot of fights in the Senate around about uh, in terms of drug and alcohol testing of um, people who are on uh, new Newstart. So uh, I guess that's sort of the environment we live in now, and uh, you've got to accept it. So this business actually tests employees in the workplace. I mean, I can imagine how important it would be, like if, if, for example, you're at a construction site, you know, if I'm working at a construction site, I want to know, everybody else says, you know, not off their face... And is fit and proper for the, for the job. Is that what we're talking about now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So they have their own centre in the southwest of Sydney that you can attend, but also they have a mobile testing van. It's a really nice setup. And, uh, yeah, essentially they'll go out and if you've got, you know, truck drivers or whatever it may be, for whatever purpose, they'll um, do your testing. Well, so it's Sydney-based? Sydney based, southwest Sydney based. What and sort of money made, are we talking about? Look, it's part of a major franchise. So essentially we're talking about the cost of the actual new franchise. The cool thing about this, and it's already two and a half years into the actual business. You've already got turnover, but you're essentially buying it for the cost of a new franchise. So just under the 200,000 mark.
0: So you paid a franchise fee to the franchisor? Uh, Is that's that included
2: talk? in the asking price, yeah. yeah. So essentially, you instead of buying a new franchise for, let's say, 150 plus plus, you actually can actually buy this business for around the same money, which has got a fully set up, brand new full set up office and a, a mobile testing van.
0: Very good. Very good. It's well, that, well, amazing how different the world is now. But uh, if you want to know more about this business that Matt has for sale, or you might want to list your business for sale, or alternatively you just want to find something for sale, there's heaps and heaps of businesses for sale. Now, Matt has changed the name of the business. It's now called allsales.biz. Yeah, absolutely. Is it, is it awesome. B-U-S or B-I-Z? B-I-Z. Allsales. Biz. You go to allsales.biz and you'll be able to find – that's the website and you'll be able to find out everything you need to know about this business that's for sale or any other business that's for sale or you can list your own business or you can find out what you got to do to get your business sold in the future. Allsales.biz. Correct. Thanks, Matt. See you next week. Thanks, Mark. I'm back here with Guy Alicia. we're talking about, um, oh, I guess, a, a whole lot of stuff but the importance of defi- the, the defeat –
1: Defibrillators.
0: We are talking about the importance of defibrillators uh, being available for people who who train, and we're not talking about just you know, in the older blokes like me. We're talking about like, across the board the the utility of a defibril- defibrillator. That's a bloody hard word to say. You say defib. Defib. That'll do yeah. me. And uh, I just I just want to just I just seem to recall many many years ago when Kerry Packer um, had his heart attack, mm. um, and he was allegedly dead for a bit of time, and he allegedly told someone that. Um, there's nothing out there. In other words, when he was dead, he didn't see anything. Um, and then I recall Kerry Packer funded um, the ambulances with these defibrillators it was 25 years ago. You were dollar
1: for dollar with the New South Wales ambulance. Right.
0: So, and that, that was putting defibrillators in ambulances, he, right?
1: The, the greatest thing he did by carking it and coming back, well, he did a lot of good things over the years, I suppose. But in this area, the thing that he did was bring awareness. Because up until then, no one even knew about a defib I never life. heard about it of it at that And Australians didn't because it was like, well, the richest guy in Australia's c- killed over and a defib got him back.
0: So, so he, he would have had an electrical issue, so to speak. So
1: there's three three things that can happen to you, and I'm no doctor, but I'll give it to you in, in plain terms.
0: Well, that, that's better than actually a doctor. Telling yeah, because everyone will understand, understand
1: this. Exactly. Electrical. So electrical issue with the heart's one thing, right? Have to have a defib, won't come back. Yep. Second one is plumbing. And so blockage you know which which is what we spoke about dfibs won't get you back back but you put the pads on if you've got a dfib every day of the week it won't shock it'll get you straight into CPR and start pumping the chest and wait for help to come with the Ambush the third one is the plumbing will start and the electrical comes in as a byproduct and that goes haywire. right if that happens you still need it, you need a dfib so anytime it's electrical you need a dfib and what these things do they actually don't restart the heart It's like when your iPhone freezes, and the only way you're going to get it working pretty much is you turn it off, you reboot it when you turn it on, and it kicks back in. A defib does exactly the same thing. So the electricity going into the heart stops the heart for a split second, and it reboots it in, and the brain and the heart go, oh, I'm meant to be pumping, not shaking. So what happens is when the electrical issue occurs, the actual heart's shaking most times like jelly in a bowl, but the brain thinks it's still pumping. That electrical shock actually reboots it, and it goes. Oh, I meant to be doing this. I meant to be pumping.
0: So uh, that's. Uh, can, I mean, you got it in front of you there.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. I know people can't, or well, they can see this actually. No, so We've got a film. So give us a look at it.
1: Yeah. So look, it's it's small.
0: So describe it to the people who are yeah, listening to the. box. It's a
1: small little little piece of equipment, the size of a, a lunchbox.
0: Yeah. It looks like a plate, yeah. a small a small dinner plate.
1: Yeah. Tiny toy-like looking
0: yeah it's got lots of I tell where it's got lots of um images like it's got three images it's got a uh, like it's got a stick like drawing of a guy with a this guy with a patch on him and then it's yeah. got another one where someone's doing uh, CPR. cpr and
1: then and then you know and then and then resting at the bottom so it gives you visual you know cues and what you need to do but the big thing with this is it's a it's a single unit you don't need to power it at all it's ready to go at any time it's got an eight-year warranty on it. it but how do you? Do
0: you sorry, guy, do you have to charge it or something? No,
1: external battery that just is ready to go. You just change that at the four-year mark. Yep. So this thing's got eight years. Eight years in it. It's a single-button operation. So I just hit one button like so, and it'll start talking to us. So, guy, just hit the green button. Adult patient, call for medical assistance. Remove clothing from patient's chest to expose bare skin. Pull green tab to remove pads. So that's just a little tab at the bottom and that opens up where the pads are. So I pull this open and the pads are in here. Yep. Peel pads from liner.
0: So you put one pad on the right hand side and one pad just below the heart on yep. the left hand side. Green tab to
1: remove pads. So it'll go back to the start because this is a real unit until you put the pads on the skin. It
0: doesn't do really- anything. So
1: if I did this to you right now, it will not shock. It will not get me to do CPR, because it will work out the fact that you're actually um alive and you're fine so
0: so it's got so it's got sensors in there to work all that yeah. stuff out
1: I mean this unit here is the only one in the world that actually coaches you when you're doing your CPR so in the actual pads, there's sensors there so if I started pumping your chest it gives me the best chance of getting you back because it says to to it'll say to me based on pressure being pushed and pace push faster push faster good CPR push deeper push deeper so it'll coach you in real time the whole way through so it knows what you're what, what you're doing and it will give you feedback. Not unlike when you're punching the pads and if you're coached by Jeff Fennig it'd say, listen, move here, do this. This thing's doing exactly the same thing. It's coaching you in real time to the patient to get them back. Is, is this it's an Australian amazing. product
0: or this is the Seattle product?
1: Uh, th- this this range is European. So there's it's the second big most popular range in the uh, the world. What's it's it called? Heart, heart sign? sign. So this is in the White House. This, um, this product is, is across the whole White House. American Airlines use this one. It's, you know, it's it's a very popular one. I, I like this one because of the CPR coaching because having done CPR and having been in extreme pressure and stress a stressful situation, you know, you don't need to be second-guessing yourself. This unit, because it talks you through everything but coaches you on the CPR, is is just games ahead of anything so else. So
0: would, would we have one of those in every surf club? in Australia at the moment?
1: Yeah, you will have, but you, you'll you only have them in 30% of gyms in Australia. You'll only have them in 10% of schools in Australia. You'll only have them in 20% of businesses in Australia, and they'll literally be in no homes. So when Charles didn't make it and all the lads that were watching me do CPR on him, and when I found this information out after the fact, every one of these guys have one of these, a Dfib in their house.
0: In the house, because oh, I was just thinking to myself, you probably, I mean, if you if you feel so inclined, it'd be a good idea to have one in your car. We,
1: I mean, yeah, if, One's if, in my car at yeah, all times.
0: If you're around near somebody who's, I mean, how good would it be to save someone's life? I mean, it's the, probably the greatest gift you can ever give anybody. Three
1: weeks ago, one of the devices, we uh, got to a running club, saved a 41-year-old man who was running. In December, one of our devices that went to a gym saved a 21-year-old girl that uh, dropped dead off the rowing machine that had a faulty heart, didn't know it and uh, they brought the defib out, got her back on the first first go. She's alive, no brain damage, no heart damage now. We've saved seven people's lives that we know about in the last three years. Since you and your group,
0: your group mates, you're talking
1: about? No, in devices off-sold right. into the general public. So so I I did a landmark deal at the start of this year because I'm hell-bent on getting um, enough defibs into the country to get up to that Seattle Survival rate. So yeah, 62%. Okay,
0: what's, your, what's your benchmark, though? So what are we talking about? Well,
1: here? that that is the world. That is the world's benchmark. Right. Seattle at sixty-two percent. You know, sixty-two
0: percent of what is uh,
1: of, of people saved that have sudden cardiac arrest in the streets of right. Seattle. So outside of a hospital, they've got a sixty-two percent survival rate, and as I said earlier, we've got a six percent survival rate. So it, it's just ridiculously bad, right? So my my job and what I want to do is get enough out there. So firstly, I've got to get enough awareness to people to know this is the biggest killer in Australia. We've got something that will actually save people's lives. You need to get one of these. They are easy to use. You don't need to be a doctor or a nurse to use them. The, the second thing is... someone you so need what, to do a course? No, you don't. But I give an online course that you get with the device. Yep. It takes 15 minutes to do, watch a five-minute video, answer some multiple-choice questions. Once you get them all correct, you get a certificate of completion. And what that does is it, it empowers you to go, I, I can do this. I could save my wife's life or my kids or my, my mate at work. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm up for it. So that's what that does. But, you know, so at the start of this year, I did a deal with Harvey Norman, which is the landmark deal in the world. So we, we are the first country to have a national retail platform sell defibs to the general public. So you can go in and buy this device in a Harvey Norman store in Australia now across the board. So I did that deal earlier this year. So I supply Harvey Norman with defibrillators that they sell to the general public, did a TV commercial, um, and that's, that's shown around the country now. So it's my job to get awareness out there, to educate people to the fact, understand the stats, but notwithstanding, take one of these devices, buy it, and feel comfortable to actually use it on someone. Because so, it's
0: only it's it's actually pretty friendly looking. It's only small. Because I mean, I guess my thought process would have been uh, defibrillators. Because I've seen other ones; they're real big, bloody things, and you stick them on a wall and stuff. But this one looks like you could carry around in, in a in a small bag. I mean, you've got a small bag there. What do you what do you pay for one of these? What's the cost?
1: They're between two and two and a half grand.
0: To say two two and a half, let's say two and a half thousand. Yeah. Um. And if you're, I mean, I. People spend that sort of money on, uh, you know, like a, a, a two nights in a hotel sometimes. Right, a laptop, you know. The, you know? <laughs> yes, right, you're right. You people spend that sort of money on a, a laptop and an iPad perhaps and, uh, or mobile phones, like the new mobile phones are getting up those sorts of dollars. Yeah, wow, a couple of grand. Yeah, yeah. they wouldn't have, they don't think to have something like this in order to save a life no. in particular. Um, So wh- why don't people take these up? What's been the biggest friction point?
1: first one is is not knowing about it. I mean, it's just it's a it's an unknown subject that over the next ten years is become more and more prevalent, and the government will come in and make it uh, mandatory for larger businesses to have it, for gyms to have it. At the moment, it's not mandatory. So, in why this, isn't it mandatory? That, that that's let, like let stupid. Me, let me tell you a stat that's just just uh, it's just ridiculous in 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 how it looks. So, in this building here, on every floor, you have to have a fire extinguisher. Yep. This year, about seventy to one hundred people will die in Australia from fire-related incidents. Which is not not great, right? Mm. Today, a hundred people are going to die from a cardiac arrest. Yeah, well, Today, the stats don't make sense. In one day, we're talking about the same number as a whole year. But these aren't mandatory in buildings, at all, you know. And and businesses are one of the top five places that people have sudden cardiac arrest. But well, but
0: like I and mean, I've got a I'm on a board of this public company, and you know, we've got staff, and uh, we have these workplace every board meeting. We have to have these workplace discussions about uh, safety in the workplace. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Um, we never – it's never been raised by anybody and we have all these workplace experts sort of telling us what we've got to cover off in the board meeting and, you know, we have exception reports which you have got to deal with and, you know, was there an incident, someone get hurt. So um, I wonder is – isn't it maybe you've got to get to the – maybe get to the regulator, ASIC, or you've got to get to the, um, the Australian Institute of Directors or something like that and say, listen, when you're doing workplace review in your board meeting, which is, you know, part of the board pack – um, shouldn't you be looking at the, the those things? Shouldn't we be looking at those things that can cause a problem, as opposed to just looking at the problems that have occurred? In other words, get to it before it happens.
1: Absolutely. And um, the, the, the issue I get now is the phone calls every week where someone goes, "Oh, listen, we need one for our local footy team because mate, one of the kids last weekend ran the ball up playing soccer and dropped dead on the on the on the sporting field. Oh, we need a defib." So I get those calls. I got a call last week from a gym, cha- gym chain of 15 gyms and uh, they're like, oh, we had a 41-year-old drop dead on the treadmill last – this is last Wednesday. Can we get DFIBs? They're the bad calls you get. It's reactive off the back it was, of someone dying. Then it's too late. And what you're saying is we need to get in early. But you don't get in early if people don't know this information. Yeah. So there's this education process that's got to start it. Yep. And once you, you hear the actual stats and what goes on and you actually taste and see what these things are like – you go oh, well. I should get one of those.
0: So, uh, is, is there a, is there any discussion around the duty of care of, um, say, an employer? For, just use an employer for an example or a gym owner. Is there a duty of care? I mean, this is a legal matter, but is there a duty of care? Do you think, in relation to the employer and or the proprietor of the gym, to have one of these there just in case something happens? Given the stats, because like. Duty of care extends to what you should know as opposed to what you actually know. So you should know that, you know, 100 people died per day from this cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac arrest. Um, So my gut feeling is that if you build a a strong enough awareness campaign that people should know about this and therefore there is a duty of care, therefore they must have one of these.
1: So legislation eventually will change so that... um, when you start looking at into work practices and that that whole safety issue, that it'll become mandatory that that'll happen. At the moment,
0: what lobbying are you doing around that? Is it federal or state?
1: I'm an ambassador for Australia Hearts, and Australia Hearts is a is a, like a non profit organisation that is raising awareness and building a database up to go to the government to make these mandatory. We're starting with with businesses at the moment to make it mandatory in businesses. Uh, medium to large. Is
0: that at a state level or a federal level? Uh, state and this, federal, this, yeah. This, so, so, I mean, who do you talk to? Gladys, you got to go talk to the Premier or you've got to talk to the Prime Minister about this?
1: I, I think both. Yeah. I, think, yeah, I, I think mean, have you got to see the it's, Prime Minister? Has anyone not, opened the door yet? Have not, you tried yet or that? Not yet. Not, no, yet. not yet, no. So, yeah, it, it's one of those ones where you start the day on this thing and, mate, you get to the end of the day and based on calls and all the stuff that you're doing with it, it just, it, it just seems like it's it, – you need 100 people. I was going to say, it 100 sounds 100, a bit I mean,
0: overwhelming. It in sort res- of is. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a bit overwhelming. And you're but-
1: saving lives every week. Like every couple of weeks you hear of someone that's, you know, the devices that you've got out there has saved a life. But um, it's overwhelming too, Guy, because as, what you'd be great is if you,
0: better if you could just sit back and just supply these things. But at the same time, you're trying to build an education program. You're trying to lobby governments to Doing build a legislation. You've Doing got to everything. physically go out and see people. that people want to, you know, because this is a... A device, so it has to be demonstrated physically. A lot Correct. of people need physical demonstrations. I go
1: out every week and do seminars. Like I'm, I'm up at uh, Bathurst next week. Last week I was in Tasmania, and I get the, the the media to turn up and I do demonstrations and we get people in the whole box and dice. You know, so I'm doing that. I've just got a warehouse on the Northern Beaches. We ship out every day around the country. Um, I service Harvey Norman now. We've got other deals that that are that are going ahead. So. It's a one-man band. I my, my business model is that I have resellers out there. They come on board. They get commission in what they do. So um, like,
0: uh, yeah, like so someone could be operating out of the uh, from home. You know, like a it could be a could be mum or dad, whatever. True. They're operating, and they and you pay them a com.
1: I pay them a com yeah. to go. And and so it's it's do that it's, to demo it. It's the quickest way. Yeah, and, and we teach them. We get them into the Sydney office into the Striker, which is the medical company that that bring these in. We get them in and we train them up so they know what's going on. Um, so yeah, so you're right. You, you know, as, as you know, in business, when you start out, um, you, you do a bit of everything, don't you? You're How collecting you been doing money, full- you're selling, you're marketing. How you're,
0: long you been doing this for now? How long has the business full, been a Full
1: time this year. Um, part time for the first two years after, after my mate dying. So I did what other people are doing now where I had the defib shipped to my house. I would literally go to the post office and send them out to people that have, um, that have bought them. But I had to build that awareness up from scratch.
0: And is the supply chain okay? So they're coming out of um, I get them Europe? out of
1: America and Europe. Yeah, right. Um, two different ranges. The two the two biggest ranges in the country. And Striker, who I'm a partner with in Australia, they're a seventy billion dollar company out of the states in the medical industry. Like ten percent of what they do is is defibs. The rest is what when you go to hospital, the machines and those sort of things that are in there. They supply that sort of stuff. So it's look. It's been a. It's I suppose in the scheme of in business world. It's it's gone quite quick, but it, it it's you know, momentum's a funny thing, isn't it? As you would know, you it's that tipping point that you get to where it, it gets a lot easier and it's starting to feel like I'm reaching that sort of levels this year, I think.
0: It's also in the beginning, whilst you're running around like a blue-ass fire in the beginning, it's sort of exciting too. Um, like it it, is. That, that sort of keeps you going. It is. To some extent, it's ignorance because you are just like
1: winning too, mate. Well, and, you know what and, the fuck and, you're and, doing. And you're
0: just saying, shit, I'm getting ahead. I'm getting ahead. I don't know who's behind me, but yeah. I'm getting ahead. I'm getting you ahead. You just
1: got to keep pushing every day. Like uh, yeah, The philosophy I had with Ironman was that um, I learned from my coaches what the formula was to success. I learned how to be the best in the world across a bunch of different things, you know and I'm, I'm applying that same process as this yeah well, and that, that and and just get shit done you know that's 100%
0: right you just get shit done just and, done, and backfill as you go along If right. you having
1: a bad day mate have a cry on the pillow get up the next morning fucking just get back into go it go again go hard it's it's sort of quite ironic ironic
0: um, um you know we started this talking to you about it and it was always a myth in my mind but you've now confirmed that you know back back in the days when you were you know Guy Leach, the the you know the famous Iron man at the peak of your Physical sort of career, as a in terms of fitness, etc., you actually were very sensitive to the sorts of things that could uh, put you on your ass, notwithstanding how hard you were training. In other words, we're all vulnerable in some respects, in some way. And here you are today, 30 odd years later, running a business around the same thing about around uh, multi
1: million dollar business, mate,
0: Did making you know? sure people understand the vulnerabilities. But by the way, we have a vulnerability, we've got to have something to fix it. And it's probably you know like apart from the brain, the heart's one of the most you know if the heart stops, you're fucked.
1: Well, it's more important because it's uh, it's the baseline to the to the brain, isn't it? You if the not brain. beating. It's totally.
0: So and that's so. it's interesting. And you're running this business now, and uh, it's ironic.
1: It really is. It is ironic.
0: I mean, it's 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 mad. Like it's mad irony. And my it's, heart
1: was the thing that got me to the the finish line first in races. It was the, it was a an issue after my career because I went and got checked, and my heart was nearly twice the size of a normal heart from the – the workload I put in from the age of eight when I started swimming to when I retired at 35. And then I had to go and try to reduce the size of that muscle because there were, there could have been issues electrically right through to three and a half years ago when one of my top five best mates dies in my hands.
0: And you were sitting around when you were 12 years of age taking your heart rate for your coach and you know recording it and logging it. And here you are uh, now in a business, 30 odd years, (laughs) selling a device that actually not only uh, helps people get their heart back up and running, but actually does monitor it.
1: It's the greater cause, isn't it? I mean, when you're talking about the biggest killer in this country and people don't know it, doesn't it seem weird that I'm sitting here talking to you and and you're, you're like, well, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that, but and, I, I don't think it's weird that Guy Leach is doing it for some reason. It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's nearly like it was mapped out for it. Yeah. Mate, we're going to run a short time and always give everyone an opportunity to ask me a question if they've got a question. Have you got a question for me?
1: Not, not, not per se with business, but more I think around, and this is something that I've, it's challenged me in my life right through, in that when, when, I was, when I was, everything I've ever done is based on the love of what I've done. You know, I, I've loved it to death. And I've been the best at it because I've loved it and done all the other bits and pieces right to get to the top. But I always found that um, during those times that there were other parts of my world in my life that weren't well balanced. And so it it, it sort of dawned on me that if you want to be the best at something, which I'm sure and this leads to my question, that I'd leave a debris of crap in other compartments of my life. So have you found that in your world where – you've been so hell-bent on parts of your you know, your business or the business that you are doing at the time that, you know, it was hard to make sure that you were well-balanced across other factors in in what you were doing in your life.
0: Well, mate, that's my life. So, yeah. um, uh, look, my my observation of you, you're a sportsman and a businessman, but my observation of people who are successful who are real, like, seek to be the best in the world at something, Jeff Ennick, um are intense fuckers. Oh, okay? You're just intense. You're intense. You're intense, dude. You I'm, can I'm feel, sure you've been to. You I, can mate, feel. you're intense, right? If Jeff was hitting you now, it'd be fucking intense. Gary uh, Vanachuk, fucking intense. I'm me, I'm intense. So I drive people mad. Um, uh, And it's not passion. It's just an intensity. And the problem is, you, the problem with the, well, the, the answer to your question is, when you were going a 1,000 miles an hour towards an outcome, which is what I do, what you do, what Jeff does, what Gary does, and I'm, I guess a lot of people do do to win, is that you leave a lot of shit behind you, okay? And that's why I said it earlier on. Um, I r- run this world where I say I have someone in my environment who always picks up the shit behind me. So he says sorry? Yeah, well, he, <laughs> does, he doesn't say it's my brother, right? So people say Mark cuts, Adrian sews. So I've always had someone running behind me, sewing up the mess I make on the way through, but you've got to be cutting all the time. You've got to keep cutting. So yeah, the answer is yes, that is my experience, but it's also the experience of the other people who I know who are successful. And so I I don't feel bad about it. Um, It is what it is. What I have learned about it is that I do need someone who can sew behind me. And that could become just, that could be just, Adrian's not an administrator, he's a lawyer, but it could be a simple Simply, in your case, a really good administration person who's there covering your tracks all the time. It's sort of because, I mean, alternatively, you've got to walk around with a branch attached to your waist uh, trailing behind you to cover up your footprint and all your tracks you're making. You need to have someone covering up all the time because something like this, where you're trying to create something new, you're trying to educate, you're trying to lobby government change legislation... You're trying to um, build awareness about something that people don't fucking understand, and uh, you know, and we're getting hit with a lot of things at the moment. We've got to try and understand. So you have got to get past everybody. You got to get a clear break. The only way you're going to do it is to be like you are, intense. But as a result of that, you're going to leave a lot of, as you said, debris behind you. So, the mate, don't feel bad about it. It's, it's pretty normal. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. But and and once your business gets up and running, and you know you're in a position you can afford, you know, if the cash flow is right, etc., you can afford to put a a really good admin person to follow behind you and clean up on your way through, that works for me.
1: Yeah, I've done I've started doing that.
0: You're doing that. Yeah. yeah well I'm doing that. and then you can sort of freely go and make a mess and just uh look over your shoulder and hopefully it's, that person's it, following behind well, you. Well
1: it's interesting where when you're younger and you're doing all that, you actually don't you don't understand it. Yeah, you yeah. You just yeah. do what you do, you know? it's the animal you are. And as you get older you start understanding it then you come to the conclusion that you probably shouldn't do it any different because if you, if you do it any different, you won't get the outcomes that you want to get. Well,
0: some people might say people like you and me and others don't care. It, I, th- care. It, we, I, mean, I care. I mean, yeah. I care, but, but at the time I don't think about it. It's no. not that I don't care. i do not think about it. And sometimes people like that are, re- are called sociopaths or psychopaths. Mm. You know, like, but a lot of successful people are like that. A lot of winners are like that. It's not that they don't care. It's that they don't think.
1: I like to win in a nice way as, as much as I can. I've always, when I did Ironman, I'd, if I could win pretty, I'd win pretty, but if I had to win ugly because it, was, it. it wasn't my day yeah, yeah, and I had to do what I had to do. It's funny, I did that. I went and did Survivor years ago. I did Celebrity Survivor and won it um, and did that, you know, 30 days out there starving and all the rest of it. And I went in the, into it going winning's more important than anything else when I compete, but how do I win Survivor without looking like a turd? you know, without putting too many people down the toilet and, and in the end of it I said, "Just, I don't give a fuck, I'll just do I well, it. Well, me and
0: now I'm going to have to win it.
1: Just going to do
0: it. Because I, I was actually funny, I tuned in a little bit of that last night mm. and, um, and I was saying, that's it's just like a stitch up. You, you've got to sort of stitch everybody up on the Sometimes way through. Sometimes
1: you just got to play the bluff and just, you know, it's just the ultimate, it's why why that, that's still around and it'll be around in 10 years' time as a reality show because it just it captures the imagination of people and when you actually go and do it, and you're sunk into that environment of, you know, you've got no one to ask, you, you, you can't get any help, they're pulling you left and right, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you have to compete every day. You know, you, you really find out who you are. And it's funny, it, else it's a very
0: interesting social mm. experiment, I think. Mm, it is. Yeah. And by the way, sometimes business is a social experiment and sometimes we get dragged into places where we don't want to go. Mm. And for me, um, being obsessed and for, and being intense is part of being in business. So you should never feel judged about it. I don't think you should ever feel bad about it, ever. Good Good answer. Good to see you, mate. All the best. Thanks, Guy.